Hello, and welcome back to the Plantas Pod, Bold Strategies for Visionary Entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Daniela Alam, and on today's episode, we speak with writer and public health dietitian, Anjali Prazer-Tong, on the importance of anti-racism in the food industry. We talk about what is missing in the conversation around nutrition and wellness, the topic of culinary appropriation, and the things founders should think about when starting food and beverage brands. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. And just a reminder that you can always go to our website, plantastrategy.com, for episode transcripts, show notes, and to book a free 20-minute intro call with me. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited for our guest today. Anjali is a writer and a public health dietitian focused on food systems, racial equity, and nutrition. And I'm so excited to have her on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you, Daniela. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so I met Anjali uh, a few years ago at a really great incubator out of New Orleans for social ventures. Um, and since then, she's gone to do really amazing work, particularly in the dietitian space. And so um, she's originally from Los Angeles, where she was the contributing editor for the award-winning food website, The Kitchen, before getting her Master of Public Health from Tulane University. In New Orleans, she led an innovative city-funded corner store program that increased fresh food access in low-income neighborhoods and worked with food entrepreneurs in the city looking to operationalize racial equity in their businesses. She now lives in Denver, Colorado, where she writes the reader-supported and amazing newsletter, my I add, Anti-Racist Dietitian, and is working with local governments, nonprofit organizations, and professional groups as a speaker and consultant on issues related to food and equity. So much there and such an exciting trajectory, Anjali, and I can't wait for, for our conversation. Yeah, me too. So maybe we can just tell us a little bit to start off um, on your story and your background. What made you decide to be an entrepreneur and la- launch your 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 Substack and celebrated newsletter? What led you to that? Um, I think it's really just the diversity of my background. Um, it kind of I, I'm a career changer, so I went to film school at USC mm. and um, really didn't end up wanting to go into the film industry. And uh, after spending some time teaching English in Japan, decided to go back to school to become a registered dietitian because I was really interested in community nutrition and improving sort of food systems. And um, from there, you know, moved to New Orleans, uh, got my public health degree um, and started working at Propeller. Um, And was kind of at a crossroads after my time at Propeller. Um, I also had this media background from working for the kitchen for many years. So when I moved to Denver, Colorado, where I live now, I realized like I didn't really know how to find another job at an organization in a way that made sense. You know, like Mm -hmm. if you went to school and kind Mm -hmm. of got on this career path and step-by-step made your way up, people would get your resume and and say, oh, I get it. I, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're right for this job or you're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. With me, it was just kind of all over the place. But I realized that actually that was a huge strength as um, an entrepreneur and really someone kind of 
who wanted to write and um, just explore this field of dietetics that doesn't have many people talking about racial equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's been amazing to just find that audience and people that do appreciate the range of experiences that I bring to the field and, and my perspective. So really it was about just not um, not knowing, not really seeing like a clear path ahead of me with what I had done and also kind of wanting to build something from the ground up that incorporated all of my values and interests and yeah, that I could just call my own. Yeah. And I feel like that's so much of the uh, so many of entrepreneurs like journeys, right? Echo that. We've heard it here on the podcast as well, where it's like, you know, things in life lead one thing to another. And then all of a sudden you're like, maybe I do take this leap into doing this thing that's really aligned with what I want to do. And mm-hmm. what what like spurred that interest in that intersection between like nutrition and like racial equity? What what was that for you? Or where does that go back to? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it goes back to living in New Orleans that does have such a strong food culture um, that is deeply rooted in Black culture mm-hmm. and also has a lot of um, racial health disparities that are just kind of undeniable when you're living there and working there. So mm-hmm. um, while I was at Tulane, I did uh, training uh, undoing racism through the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, which I highly recommend oh. for everyone. Um, and in that training, you know, we were talking about sort of these systems and how white supremacy is part of all these systems. And I suddenly realized that that was why I was feeling just disenchanted with dietetics and nutrition was because they didn't directly admit that that was part of the equation, that people's mm-hmm. food choices are deeply Um, affected by their race, their class, all these other factors outside of their personal choice. So that was kind of the kickoff and me realizing I really want to do something that first admits that racism exists and like has an impact on our health. um, And second is trying to do something to change it. Uh, Mm. So while I was in school, I actually got involved with um, through Propeller, got involved with a chef named Tunde Wei. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he does um, really interesting and provocative sort of social experiments that are also dining experiences. (laughs) Um, So in New Orleans, he had this pop-up lunch counter. He's um, originally from Nigeria. And he was interested in like shining a light on income and wealth inequities. Um, Mm -hmm. So he had this lunch counter where he made every day a different Nigerian meal. And for the price was $12. um, But if you were a white person, the price was 2.5 times that, which is the income inequity between white and black households in New Orleans. Oh, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So you had the choice if you're a white person to say yes or no, like he didn't force you to pay that, but you did have to like sit through a little spiel he gave about wealth and income inequities. And then um, if you were a person of color, you had the option of being added onto the list of people who kind of, he took all the excess funds, like the, the white, diners that mm-hmm. paid extra and then at the end disperse them to any diner of color mm-hmm. who wanted to sign up for this to get kind of like reparations. Wow. Um, and then I helped him with sort of 
designing the data collection because everyone took a survey um, so we could sort of track the demographics and people's decisions. And then I also did interviews with them. So that kind of blew up and went viral because it was a pretty provocative idea. Um, wow, and, it's amazing. Yeah. I need, I need a link. I need a link. And yeah, we'll definitely link I'll, it in the show notes. But yes. wow, that's such a cool concept. And just so radically different from what mm-hmm. we normally see, right? In the food industry, where like I, I feel like the inequity and the presence of white supremacy is often not even acknowledged in the right. Yeah. So it's just so, so wow. Yeah. yeah. So like what what were some of the sort of big insights or ahas that you got from that experience? So the big insight was, um, so the majority of of white diners actually did um, pay the higher amount, and um, and that, but then when we broke it broke down the numbers, it was like ninety percent of white women <laughs> paid more, and like forty something percent of white men did. Wow! So that was just interesting, um, but also understandable because I think if you're a woman, even a white woman it's easier to accept the idea of these things that are out of your control that have an impact on your, how much you earn and things right. like that. Yeah. Um, and then just talking to people, it was just so interesting to talk to, you know, I talked to a black woman who had been given um, because we talked, kind of talked about these points, turning points in their lives that affected their sort of class and earnings later. And Mm -hmm. so she talked about how she had been given um, an internship in Washington, D.C. when she was in college. And then she realized, oh, but I have to support myself for three months in D.C. And well, you're not paying me anything and I won't be able to live. Like, how do you do that? How does all that work? Yeah. How will that work? And, um, and at the same time, uh, there was also a set of um, friends, one was a black woman, one was a white woman. And the white woman was talking about how she realized in, in doing this interview with her friend, that the small inheritance that she got from her grandmother when her grandmother passed away, um, was able to support her at a time where she really needed it in order to get to that next level of making a little more money. And her mm. her black friend did not have that because there wasn't that generational wealth that existed. Mm. Wow. And like, I guess that kind of leads to my next question because I, I love the name of your newsletter, Anti-Racist Dietitian. <laughs> I feel like that's very, as a marketer, I'm like, yes, say it how <laughs> it is. Um, why is it so important to be anti-racist in the food industry specifically, would you say? I would say um, in the the food industry is just an industry where it, it's... Uh, there's just so many reasons. I mean, if you're looking at, (laughs) if you're looking at, for example, like um, the CPG industry, that is, you you know, you and I work together there and it's a place where um, just information and resources get hoarded by the people who already have power over that information and those resources. And that means usually white men. Um, And without a concerted effort to change that, it will just keep perpetuating. And you might say, well, you know, I'm just, you know, going with my networks. I'm just going with the people that I know, but that is exactly the problem. Right. Um, and when we're talking about nutrition and health um, and that side of the food industry, I think it's that um, 
because of this legacy of um, racism and uh, slavery and all sorts of systems of oppression, people of color are more likely to be suffering from chronic diet-related diseases. And at the same time, dietitians are 80%, 80 80% of them are white. And so the people that are supposed to be addressing these problems and solving them just don't represent the diversity um, and are less likely to kind of have the cultural skills to solve those problems. Mm -hmm. And even like using, I think, some like outdated, potentially considered even like racist measures, right? Like BMI, right? Mm -hmm. Is it like, what's your thought on like that? Because I, I, I mentioned it a while ago in sort of an industry context and everybody was so like, what, what do you mean that BMI <laughs> is not like something we should be actually like using? Um, yeah. It has some dubious sort of uh, beginnings and backgrounds to it. So mm -hmm. can you tell us about that from your perspective? Yeah. So BMI was not intended to ever even be like an individual measure, like to measure an individual body against some sort of standard. Um, mm -hmm. It was intended to kind of look at um, it was sort of like a thought experiment, I think, of just mm. like, what is the perfect body or whatever? And that mm -hmm. was based on a white man, um, <laughs> like much of nutrition, science and research. Um, and then since then, you know, there's really it's it's just kind of been used to as like a weapon against mm -hmm. people because you know, a lot of people from different countries, different um, racial and ethnic backgrounds don't traditionally have bodies that match up to this BMI measurement. And once you are kind of classified as quote unquote overweight or obese, that sends you down a whole trajectory of, you know, maybe there's an operation that you need, but you can't access it until you lose enough weight to be just under this measure that is really like, what's the difference between 24.5 on the BMI scale versus 25, you know, like it's such mm -hmm. a small mm -hmm. number on the scale that it really doesn't have a true reflection on health. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of just the ideals around bodies and what bodies women's bodies should look like are rooted in just racism and slavery. And um, there's a really good book called Fearing the Black Body mm -hmm. by Sabrina mm -hmm. Strings that, that gets into that. Yeah, that's that's such a good one. And I think, yeah, it it, it kind of shows you like how insidious like some of this stuff is, right? That it's in the food industry, it's in the health industry, you hear from your health practitioners. Um, it it unless you have existed in a body, right, that is a marginalized body, you won't understand sort of what what kind of these bigger structures. Uh, want to make you believe about mm -hmm. what's right and what's wrong. And I think the other point that I thought was really interesting, what that brought to mind was particularly with the CPG industry, right? Like, I think a lot of people, and I know this, like recently going to Expo West this last year, right? And hearing all this conversation around diversity, diversity, we want more diverse founders. But yet, you know, the room and the halls look the same that they have been for the last 10 years that I've been going. Right. So like, to me, it's just indicative of like, there's a lot of talking going on, 
but we need to start seeing some of this real change happening and getting some of these resources, these best practices, um, these even like trade secrets and industry know-how to a broader swath of people that can actually compete. And that's what I really love about um, actually what Propeller does and some of the work we do with with the entrepreneurs there, um, because it just feels like, wow, if, if we if they weren't doing it through this, like they would not have access. Like it's such a closed circle, yet probably most of the attendees and the natural foods and product industry think we're very like welcoming. It's open to all. Right. And it, we need to challenge those perceptions um, and those assumptions about what is actually accessible to people versus not. So I really connected with that, that you yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I totally agree because it's, I think there's also a difference between diversity and diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you need right. those other two parts to truly make it a space that welcomes everyone and is available for everyone to join. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that's another really good point that so often people get focused on just one of those. Um, and and then even also don't include some of the other things like accessibility, right? Like, let's mm-hmm. not even talk about that one. That's like really low on the list for most people. Um, so, so yeah, but keeping it into the sort of vein of anti-racism in the food industry. Um, I saw you, I think, write about this and I was hoping we could talk about it a little bit, which is what is culinary appropriation? Can you <laughs> define that for us? Um, and help us understand, like, why is that problematic? Yeah. So um, most people have heard of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. which is um, sort of taking on the some sort of practice of another culture and calling it your own, not really acknowledging the original culture and mm-hmm. not really acknowledging the complexity of um I would say, I would say just a white person. Like I, Mm -hmm. it's different if it's another, someone from another marginalized background taking on another Mm -hmm. culture um, Mm -hmm. for me personally. Mm -hmm. So culinary appropriation, I think is just an offshoot of that that happens really frequently. And I think there it's, it's not that um, no one can ever cook the food of another culture. I think the problem is when someone from, um, when someone takes on a culture that is marginalized without sharing the resources that they are gaining from appropriating Mm -hmm. that, that culinary um, secret or Mm -hmm. uh, practice, or just doesn't do it in a respectful way that acknowledges that they are not the originator of Mm -hmm. that um, Mm -hmm. dish or Mm -hmm. that style of cooking, Mm -hmm. that's when I think it becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of different ways that that can show up. Um, For example, you know, just recently, the LA Times stopped italicizing food words that are foreign words. Mm. Um, And that is kind of a way of not othering that. Um, Similarly, like if recipes lead with the actual name of the dish in the the language of origin, and then put the English in parentheses, that's kind of um, 
centering that dish and its origins rather than your interpretation of it. Mm. And it's totally fine to to have an interpretation of, of another culture's disc, dish, but not to kind of claim it as the one and only. Because um, I think the the issue is that if we look around at like culinary content creators, influencers, people like that, a lot of times they are getting famous, making money off of dishes from cultures that are not their own. Um, mm-hmm. And and some ways to kind of mitigate that because it's a lot, sometimes it's not their fault or they're not setting out to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, media often will kind of already be, just as we talked about, um, like systems already set up to sort of flow in a certain direction. Media mm. is already set up to kind of shine the light on these white influencers that already have a big audience and then it grows. So, but the ways that you might mitigate that would be, for example, to like um, use products but from company like CPG companies owned by people from that culture, for example, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. are often like smaller, maybe mm-hmm, local mm-hmm. Um, or uplifting creators who are from that culture, whose food mm-hmm. that you're cooking mm-hmm. um, to kind of spread, use your voice and platform to um, uplift other people rather mm-hmm. than, again, sort of hoarding those resources. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that people don't often think about it. I don't think it's malicious much of right. the time, but yeah. it's just a simple way to make things more equitable. Yeah. And I think also like especially for dishes, I think, or for products, foods that are, that have such a long history, right? And like have a whole culture of people who know how to prepare that well, who've taken years, generations perhaps to like finesse the art of making that thing. to like honor that, like I used to work prior to my stints in CPG, I worked um, in like intellectual property negotiations and traditional knowledge was one of the things that came up a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in relationship to plants and like the traditional knowledge of which plants did what, like a famous example is of a pharmaceutical company trying to patent turmeric for anti-inflammatory properties when you know the Indian government (laughs) was like for 5,000 years like Ayurveda (laughs) has known about this like you can't be patenting like what we know to be true and is our knowledge that we kind of take in and I think similarly with food one of the things I see a lot in the CPG space is like an extension of this is like being like, this is an innovation. Like we just broke through, like we totally innovated this like traditional thing. My favorite example is all of the ways that they've bastardized hummus. I'm Lebanese, so it oh, hurts yeah. pretty badly. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's just offensive to mm-hmm. us. Like chocolate and hummus should not be in the same equation. Similarly, at Expo West, <laughs> I saw I saw a quinoa hummus, and that was like doubly offensive to me because I'm part Bolivian, part Lebanese, and I was like, you're using two things that 
This just doesn't like, it's not, let's not call that innovation. Like, let's just call that a crazy idea, but like, don't be saying that you've improved on the original. Like let's, let's let hummus be hummus like on its own. Um, So like, that's something I see a lot too, right? It's just like, we've just, we've taken chai and we've made it better. We've Mm -hmm. taken X thing and we've made it better. And it's like, there's this assumption that like it needed to be better, like that there was something wrong with it in the first place um that that i find you know pretty problematic in the food industry but thankfully i think the brands that really are succeeding what what is interesting about that is you know the example with chocolate hummus is like most of these things don't actually have like market sticking power either right mm-hmm. because i think consumers start to see right through it um for the most part some of them obviously notoriously stay stay on shelves and and do well um but but I think sometimes the market kind of corrects for that and tells people like that wasn't a good innovation to begin with. Like you shouldn't have been touching that um, yeah. kind of thing, you know? Um, but it's just like really funny. Do you have any examples of like these kind of like, let's innovate on like a traditional food? That's- I mean, yeah, I, there was a, there was a, a kind of infamous example of um, a person in Portland who was making kanji which is, oh, you know, that yeah, traditional yeah, yeah. Asian breakfast. I'm I'm half Thai, so it's also a Thai thing for breakfast. Um, but she said she was making it healthy. <laughs> oh, no. So, and that's like something you see so much in the dietitian right. space of like, oh, no, it's, um, you know, it's like, it's like Chinese takeout, but it's good for you. Um, right. Which is all, also offensive because it's like a lot of times these foods were made less healthy in order to have a market here in the US. And then now they have these bad reputations, even though the original, like if you go back, 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 the original dish is incredibly healthy and nutritious and you don't need someone to come along and insult you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Insult you and like 5,000 years of perfecting, you know? (laughs) Um, And I think it's that like lack of like, you know, seeing that, like the history of things, right? I think we get, we humans tend to get so caught up in like the now and the present that it, it it's hard to like constantly be thinking like, where does this really come from? And like, where does, where does this like racist thing come from? Where does like, it's not a easy exercise for people to do most of the time, but I find like, if you just like take a moment and just like think, think through like what what happened in the past that could have informed why this is showing up in this way then you'll often find the answer right there and then you won't come up with these offensive innovations (laughs) Um, and you'll think well maybe maybe i shouldn't position it as healthy i should just position it on like whatever it's a california fusion twist Mm -hmm. you know like and i think the words really kind of matter and i think that that leads me to another thing I wanted to kind of talk with you about, which is, you know, most of the founders that I work with are in food and beverage and they're starting, they've launched or, or, or they're about to launch brands and products out into the CPG world. And I think sometimes a lot of them tend to get stuck on this idea of like, I need to use things that are kind of trendy. Like I need to have product benefits like plant-based or high fiber, or like pre, po, or pro, post-biotic. Um, so like what else should they be considering? Like if somebody is thinking of starting a brand, 
From your perspective, what else should be in the consideration set as they start to build their products, as they start to build their brands beyond these kind of trendy benefits? I think uh, what I think about a lot is just um, how are you improving the food system as a whole? Like not just how are you going to improve the lives of the people who buy your product, but if whether that is through um, building a more sustainable supply chain, whether that is just um, having a culture that's you know, really values all of your workers, no matter where they are. Um, and, and those are kind of, yeah, those are the innovations and the interesting ideas that stand out to me of like, what, what are these ways that we can make the world better through our products, not just through buzzwords? Wow. I mean, I think what you said, like, deserves repetition. Like, how are you improving the food system as a whole? I don't think that's a question that a lot of entrepreneurs ask themselves. I think it's more common of BIPOC entrepreneurs to ask mm-hmm. themselves that question or what in my experience and what I've seen, right, is that the it's kind of inherently built often into the fabric of, of the brands and the products that they're trying to launch. Um, but it's I think it's a very provocative question because I think some might say, well, I don't need to improve the food system. I'm just trying to make money. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to, you know, pay, pay <laughs> bills. I'm trying to get my company bought out, whatever it is, right? I'm just trying to, I have this great idea and I just want to commercialize it and, and make some some bucks. But why would you, like, I guess, why would you advise against an approach like that? Or or what could be the pitfall of some, of everybody in the food industry thinking like this? I mean, I think the pitfall is the resources are not infinite. You know, we mm-hmm. we will get to an end point and I feel like it's getting scarier every year yeah. um, when it comes to climate, but also things like income inequities mm-hmm. and just um, and how how that is just growing and growing. And so I think it's also just in consumer trust. Um, I think especially younger people can feel when that difference is genuine and when it's just words that you're using to sell your product. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think there are some companies that have been able to sort of tap into those deeper meanings and um, deeper missions. And I think it resonates with their customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we see that, right? We see that in the research that more and more consumers, especially as we go younger, um, want to see brands that, you know, live and die by their values, right? That are not just saying, oh, we care about this thing. It's like, well, do you really care? Like, show me the receipts, like show me that you care. Like if you care about sustainability, I want to see it, right? I want to see it and believe it. And also on the flip side, especially we're seeing this trend, I think in around Gen Zers is that like, if they find that, you know, something of what you said wasn't congruent 
with this mission that you said you you had that they'll call you out for you you know they'll mm-hmm. they'll drop you they'll cancel you they'll move they'll move on right <laughs> um they're really like their loyalty is a precious resource like if you're thinking of of being a founder and and connecting with consumers and i think it's not just like the right thing to do. It's also good business because of mm-hmm. that, right? Because the the market and consumers are starting to change about what they expect from brands. Um, and I think that that is for me, like one of the ray of lights, right? In this like very crazy and tumultuous times, right? Where, where there's so many things to worry about. Supply chains are all messed up. And I think what I'm seeing in just hanging and doing some research with like younger, younger generation folks and consumers in particular is that they're thinking very differently from the ways that perhaps even my millennial generation was thinking. And obviously the ones beyond that um, and in the types of products that they're support. So I think Mm -hmm. there's maybe a ray of light here um, (laughs) that will eventually hopefully shift, shift the market. And I think one of the questions also that I think, I get a lot um, is, you know, working with founders that maybe don't have a lot of resources, right? Like they're probably BIPOC founders. They are stretched thin. They don't have a lot of time, energy, money, um, but they want to think about ways to build equity into their businesses. Mm -hmm. What are some sort of accessible ways? Because I think sometimes it feels like such a big ask. And they're like, I have to worry about my supply chain. I got to worry about my yeah, socials. Yeah. Like, wh- how can I fit this in? So do you have any sort of tips or guidance for, for founders that want to build this into their business, but maybe feel overwhelmed? Yeah. Um, one of the one of the entrepreneurs I worked with at Propeller was in this boat where they didn't even have employees. So it was just like, what, <laughs> what can I really <laughs> right. do? But um, we worked together with his lead mentor um, who his lead mentor um, was the head of like a restaurant group in New Orleans. So oversaw a lot of people. So we worked together to just really solidify his values and kind of write up a value statement about how that would be reflected in the culture of his organization. And that is something that's the the kind of like statement and centering that you can use Mm -hmm. as on the day to day as Mm -hmm. like a solopreneur to Mm -hmm. kind of recenter you on what is important, you know, what partnership should I be going for? What, where should I spend my energy? Um, As well as like moving with you as you grow at Mm -hmm. no matter which stage to always kind of remember what it is you're all about and what kind of people you want to bring along with you and uh, why you're all there. Mm. I think that's really great because it almost also ties back to the question about how are you improving the food system as a whole? Because I think the answer to that question gives you sort of this mission. Like, what is your mission? What is your reason for being? Like, why mm-hmm. why does the industry need you and your product and your brand? And I think if folks can kind of come up with a, a good statement as to why it needs to exist, then I, I really like that, that that can be sort of like your North Star that grounds you and that maybe even if you are a solopreneur can inform decisions about like, okay, maybe I'll buy from this supplier versus another one um, mm-hmm. and and do it in a very sort of accessible uh, way. And I think, you know, 
I'm biased, but I, I really think that the that the brands that are really successful that I've seen be successful from small to like larger over time have had a very strong point of view around mm-hmm. why they need to exist and why they're here and are very grounded in that. And I see and I've seen it also in the BIPOC entrepreneurs in the food industry, right? That it's like no matter what, I got I got my like I might get I might get dethroned as CEO, I might get all these things <laughs> thrown at me, but I still know what my mission and my purpose and and why I'm here to do this um and, and what's the value that I'm bringing. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's really um kind of helpful. Um what are there any other things that you might suggest that like small scale founders can, or maybe like plant the seeds for like in the future as they maybe bring on team members um, or things they, they could consider as they yeah. grow. Um, definitely, you know, we're talking about not hoarding information and kind of letting it flow freely. Um, thinking about some sort of mentorship, whether that is casual or more Mm, formal to mm -hmm. make sure that all these lessons that you have learned along the way, and maybe like special access that you've been able, that you have had, how can you pay that forward? And that applies to BIPOC entrepreneurs as well as white entrepreneurs, because we definitely, um, it's just so it was so helpful and propeller to have someone who had access to these spaces, open doors for Mm -hmm. the ventures that they were working with. Yeah. I love that. And I think that can even be amplified as like a sort of as a call to like our white and otherwise privileged colleagues, right. In the industry um, to, you know, that often are like, I don't know what I can do to like help. Well, here we go. Like there's an answer right here, right? Like (laughs) open those doors, like share some of the information, share resources, bridge those gaps. That already is going to be probably revolutionary for some Mm -hmm. folks that might not have access to that. Um, So I I think that's really a a really sort of good example. Um, Do you have any sort of brands, products, even, I guess, content creators that you think are doing a good job at these things? Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of uh, Diaspora and her spaces. Okay. We Um, love her. Yes. yes. (laughs) So, and even from like, I've been an early fan from just like the selling on Instagram days and um, just always loved how that brand really always is communicating how they're changing the food system, you know, like from the very beginning, just getting, having a little handout of like, this is who grew the spice. And like, this is why it's important that we're sourcing the spice from, from this farmer. Um, So yeah, that's a huge example. And then um, I really enjoy Daybreak Seaweed out of California. Oh, I don't Um, think I know that. And that's another just, cool, like building sustainability into the business. And, um, you know, seaweed is incredibly nutritious and sustainable. Um, Mm -hmm. And they do really good storytelling around their products and the people growing them. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And they actually, they actually had like a nutrition misstep that went out and run their newsletters. And I wrote back to them and was like, this is, no, you shouldn't be recommending this it was just weird like sort of internet like 
TikTok style nutrition information. Right, I was like, this right. is false. Don't maybe tell not, not. And yeah. they were super responsive to that and just totally were open to the feedback. So as a consumer, I appreciated that. Yeah, I think that's that's actually really big kudos to them for kind of listening to that. I I love that you brought up diaspora. I think the the business model, you know, even the branding is so powerful. Um, I think some you know people would be like, well, that's such a hard supply chain, and as it grows, like, how are they going to do that, right? Like, there's a lot of ways that you could be like, this is not realistic, or I couldn't do it for my brand. But I think what that brand really shows is that if you build that intentionality into the fabric of your business, then like you make it work somehow. And then I I don't know if it's happened to them, right? Because I think the biggest issue with what they're doing or the biggest risk is is a fragile supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. I experienced that when I worked at traditional medicinals, we were sourcing herbs from all over the world. And very often, you know, if you had a crop failure, you had to go and source it from another part of the world, right? So mm-hmm. I wonder like what kind of things they have in place for that. I don't think they've experienced that quite yet with the with the spices they're growing. But certainly with climate change, it's it's something that might happen. And how can they keep this ethos as you know the availability of things um grows over time? So I'm curious yeah. to see that. And, and I also love the example of Daybreak accepting feedback. I think so much, so many brands, you know, have a hard time with that, especially sometimes founders, like hearing from consumers, like, oh yeah, we like made an error. Let's just uh, fix it instead of, you know, making a whole PR thing or like trying to cover it up or, or pointing yeah. blame elsewhere, right? Um, and I think it's just a testament to like, this is the new from what I see is the new level of expectation that consumers are starting to have, right? Mm -hmm. Like you are more likely now to be loyal to this seaweed company than any other seaweed company. And so there is a significant business value to listening to, to your people, the people that you're trying to serve. Um, So I love that example um, as well. So as we wrap up, I think I wanted to kind of go a little bit full circle and and talk about like, what is like, do you have one piece of advice like that you could share to other entrepreneurs or founders starting off their journeys? Like if somebody is like, okay, tomorrow I'm quitting my job, I'm doing this. What would be like your biggest piece of advice? Um, just from a personal <laughs> advice that I need to take myself yeah. is um, learn when to say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Say very, that again. very hard for me to do. Yeah. Um, especially, I think, especially when you're starting out because it is so new and exciting and you're like, oh, you want me and my idea? Okay. Like, I want you too, I guess. Um, you're right. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I myself am wrapping up a sabbatical right now that came out of just saying, yes to everything and really reaching a point of burnout. And mm. um, so ne- I needed this time away to say, what is really important to me? What, why do I exist? How, <laughs> what, what is my most important role here? And being able to move forward and operate from that place and being comfortable with saying no to things that aren't the right fit for um, following that mission. Yeah. Wow. That's such an important one. I need to hear it. I think every entrepreneur needs to hear that. 
one because it's such a I think especially when you're when you're going I think in that transition period I think from maybe like having a full-time job or um or just like a different pace of life and then you're like thrust into the entrepreneurship space where it just feels like you need to be like just doing it all like I'm gonna say yes to this I'm gonna do this because that's what I'm used to from like what I what I was doing before but I think one of the beauties of entrepreneurship and at least one of the reasons why I chose that path and I think a lot of us do is for that freedom right Mm -hmm. is for that space is to be able to like really create intentionally the things that we want to create things that are really aligned with our values and so for me one of the things that is helpful is sometimes going back to that like mission statement or like north star moment of like what am i really doing this for um and is this really kind of gonna move the needle and then also i think it's about understanding and i and and i think you also kind of have written about this is like the boundaries of like what is it may be great. Like it may be an amazing opportunity. It may be like, you know, it sounds, it's like a shiny object, but something about it doesn't feel right. Or I'm not in the right frame of mind, or I'm not feeling up to par like health wise. So like, is it really worth me pushing myself and going to burnout to do this thing? Or is it better to prioritize my well-being? And I, mm-hmm. for me, that's like a big part of the journey of entrepreneurship is like understanding what's really like a must, what's like a nice to have, um, and what really is going to like add value to, to the work that I'm doing and to, to the impact that I'm giving in the world. And sometimes that even means saying no to things that would be like incredible in theory, but like for many reasons might not actually end up being the best thing for you. Um, So I think that, you know, that's like the beauty I think of, of this journey. So tell us a little bit about like, okay, you're coming out of your sabbatical. So what's next? We're turning back the newsletter on and what, what kind of, where, where can folks catch you and find you um, and hear more from you? Yeah, so I'm um, getting back into my Substack newsletter, and people can subscribe at Anjali Ruth. That's A N J A L I R U T H. Substack. Com. Um, anti-racist dietitian, and I'm going to be have some upcoming pieces about just um, school food and kind of um, racial inequities in school food system and how to address those a little bit about um, public health and weight stigma within public health, which is a Mm. huge issue mm-hmm. um and working on an exciting collaboration um that will be like a series of of posts that i can't talk too much about but is it, it it's exciting it's, it's in the works and it <laughs> will be great yes. oh amazing um and uh and i also have some articles that are upcoming um in well and good um and men's health. So you can uh, check out my website, which is angelyruth.com, where I will have all of my clips to the other things that I've done for freelance writing. Um, I'm also on Instagram at antiracistrd. Amazing. And then are you going to be at a few events? Uh, Yes, I have an upcoming event. So the... um, 
annual conference for dietitians is going to be in Denver this year. Um, oh. I won't be attending, but I will be giving a presentation at Weight Inclusive Nutrition and Dietetics, WIND. Um, they have a, a gathering kind of right before the dietitians conference. So um, that's in October and uh, that should be a good time. Wow. Amazing. So welcome back. Welcome back from your sabbatical. We're excited to see and I can't wait to read. I highly, highly recommend everybody signing up uh, for the news for the Substack newsletter. Every single article on there is just like really amazing. So if you like this conversation, please make sure to check it out. And thank you so much, Angelie, for, for so joining fun. us. This was so fun to catch up. I always learn something new. Um, and yeah, can't wait to talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Plantas Pod. Just a quick reminder that if you like the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a new episode. Until next time.